Hey everyone, I'm Kareen Levy and this is Scrib Chat, the podcast that connects you to your favorite authors through insightful conversations about their latest and greatest works. In this episode of Scrib Chat, San Francisco Bureau Chief for Inc. Magazine, Jeff Berkovici, sat down with historian Leslie Berlin to chat about her book, Troublemakers, Silicon Valley's Coming of Age. In a recent article in Recode, Berlin said that exploring Silicon Valley in the 1970s and 80s was like watching the Big Bang. In this episode, we'll learn how seven exceptional men and women transformed Silicon Valley from an obscure playground for gearhead engineers to the bustling hub that launched five major high-tech industries, personal computing, video games, biotechnology, modern venture capital, and advanced semiconductor logic, all in just seven years. You can read Troublemakers for free on Scrib with your subscription. And if you're not yet a Scrib member, you can read for free for 30 days by downloading the Scrib app or visiting Scrib.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-D.com. And with that, here's Jeff Berkovici and Leslie Berlin in conversation at Scrib's headquarters. Thanks, everyone. So, Leslie... Tell me about, tell us about uh, the era that Troublemakers covers. It's 19, it picks up in 1968, and it runs basically through the end of the 70s. Right. So this period of time to me, is, it, was, it was so fascinating. I, I made a timeline of sort of big events in Silicon Valley history, put a little dot. And this period, especially the period from 68 to 76 was just this incredible overlapping multicolored gigantic dot and that it it this is really the time where silicon valley moved from being a place where basically gear gearhead microchip engineers sold chips to other gearhead engineers and became instead the place where five major industries were born in the, in the space of just that little window I mean, if you just look from 1968 to 1976, you have Apple, Intel, Genentech, Atari, Kleiner Perkins, Sequoia Capital. You have the first ARPANET transmission comes into SRI uh, in Menlo Park. You have the birth of the independent software movement, which happened in a lot of places when IBM separated its hardware from software, but really took root here in the valley. And this is also at the same time when Stanford decided, you know, we should really see if we can make some money off of the inventions from our faculty, staff, and students. And that led to all sorts of ideas that formerly had been locked up in labs and and professors' heads making their way into uh, the world as we know it, and also led to, say, Stanford having a very large stake in Google when Google went public. And you, you tell this story through six or seven characters, six, six seven kind of major characters, and I think Bob Swanson's in your list of characters as well. Uh, you didn't pick these characters because they are the names we all know. Tell me about how uh, you chose the vessels for your storytelling here. Uh, so I had three primary criteria in trying to figure out how do you st- tell a story that is as complicated as the, the threads that I just laid out. And because you, you could choose from so many different people. And to me, my three, the three criteria were, one, I wanted them to be lesser known. So when I talk about Apple, I don't talk about the two Steves, though, of course, they are in there. 
um, but I talk about a guy named Mike Markula, who very few people know about, but I contend that without Mike, you would never have had Apple. He was a guy who'd retired from Intel, quite young, quite wealthy, and uh, met these two guys in the garage and was the reason that a very smart idea was able to become a business. He built for them an entire infrastructure basically made of old semiconductor guys, basically middle managers in their 40s and 30s who uh, laid the whole system out for Apple. Uh, if you look at Apple at its IPO, the people who came from the semiconductor industry included the, the board chair, the president, the VP of manufacturing, the VP of marketing, the VP of sales, the CFO, their major investors, their three major investors, all had ties to the chip industry. So Mike Markula is the person who I wanted to talk about there because Steve Jobs was 21 years old when Apple started. He, he had 17 months of business experience in his entire life, and that was working as a tech for Atari. So that's not the person who grew that company into the fastest company ever to make it into the Fortune 500. He later developed the skills as we know. Although Mike Markula was what, like six, like eight years older than right. him? Right, he, he, he was all like, of 35 or something yeah. like that. But he had been at Intel for the whole ramp up. He got there before the IPO. He got there before the microprocessor was invented. And he watched how this all happens and really kind of put that into practice, not just with the lessons that he had learned, but in some cases with the exact same people who he had gone through that ride with. So criteria one, it ha I wanted people who were unknown. I, I went to a party once and attending that party was the uh, COO of a company with a very famous CEO. And this COO started singing a little song. And the only words to the song were, I did all the work, he got all the credit. <laughs> and um, I really feel like people in the spotlight deserve to be in the spotlight. Very often, they, they definitely deserve to be there. And it's taking nothing away from them to say that they're only there because of all those people who are just outside of the spotlight. The great majority of people are just outside of the spotlight, and I wanted to talk about them and how they led uh, to the people who are so well-known and how they built these companies that matter. So unknown. Two, they had to have done something important or, in some cases, teach us something important about the Valley. And three, they had to be really good stories because I think those of us who are embedded deep in tech would maybe read this book because it's, it's about cool companies, how things got started. And, but I wanted this to be something that people, I grew up in Oklahoma, that people in Oklahoma would want to pick up and read because it had interesting stories in it in the same way you would pick up a book, of, uh, you know, a novel. So those were my three criteria. I, I have to say, it, I was not expecting the degree to which this book would feel like, it feels like Mad Men. When I, when I read it, 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 there's a lot of similarities <laughs> that you have all of these um, really young, dynamic characters in an industry that thinks it's grown up, but it doesn't know it's about to tip over into this whole new era. Mm -hmm. and, and you have all these, these people who are just saying, like, why shouldn't we be the ones who you know, make it into what we know it could be? Yeah, I mean, I, something that I think is really interesting is if you 
talk to someone who we now would call a trailblazer, if you talk to that person, almost every one of them will say, I wasn't blazing a trail. I was putting one foot directly in front of the other, trying to figure out how to take one more step. And when I turned around, I saw that there, you know, there was a different trail behind me. And um, I think that's the way it, it worked then, and to some extent the way it works now. And, and uh, to the point of how you uh, picked these characters, that they had to be both unknown but also played a major part, uh, you know, done something really important. In, in a couple of cases, people in this book are, they're not happy about that combination of things, but, but being the one who uh, they feel like was, is not the one who's getting credit for it 50 years later, right? Who are you thinking of? Um, I, I think that there was uh, somebody at, was it uh, the Atari co-founder was pretty, he, he ended up leaving uh, the company unhappily about that, right? And I think there were, might have been one yeah, or two other instances. Yeah, I mean, this, this, ha this does happen where um, people do get written out of the history, for sure. And that, you know, that's not just in tech, that's everywhere. And in addition, I think the, the story that most surprised me um, in this book was the, the story of Bob Taylor. Um, and I'm, I'm curious if, how many people here know who Bob Taylor was. If you've read the book, don't answer. Okay, this is beautiful. Nobody knows who Bob Taylor was. Okay, so Bob Taylor was the guy who convinced the Department of Defense when he was working there to start a computer network that became the ARPANET that eventually morphed into the Internet. So step one is start the internet. And then this same guy, Bob Taylor, ends up leaving the Department of Defense because he didn't want to be affiliated with the Vietnam War. And that that sort of pushback against the Vietnam War is something that was really important uh, to the birth of the valley. He leaves and after a little side trip, um, ends up here in, well, down where I live in Palo Alto, where what he does is run the computer science lab at Xerox Park, And the, that is the lab that Steve Jobs famously visited in 1979, where he saw what was called the Alto. And that's where, for the first time, he saw most of the components of what we today think of as a personal computer. Uh, that's The mouse wasn't invented there, but that, that was the sort of the mouse had been integrated into the whole notion of the most important feature to interact with is a screen. There, was, uh, there were overlapping windows. You could edit on the screen. There was a functional email system. The things that these people had going there in, 19, in the 1970s was insane. I watched a video they did, a demo. And in 1977, they were controlling the cursors on each other's screens across the country. And in 1977, you think about how long it took all of this to make its way out to us. Okay, so that's the same guy, Bob Taylor, um, who made this happen. And what's fascinating, he's, he's born in Texas, in kind of the hill country of Texas, like Jobs was adopted, was always told that he was um, chosen, rather than, you know, most parents have to just deal with whoever shows up. Um, you know, they were, they were selected. And his, his story, is, is essentially unknown, even though he was this larger-than-life character who, with a master's degree in psychology from the University of Texas, a very good school, of course, he ran this lab filled with arguably the greatest computer scientists in the world, so great that the president of MIT 
complained that uh, they were not able to attract faculty and computer science education was at risk in the United States because everyone was working for Bob Taylor at Xerox Park. So that's the kind of person I'm talking about who people don't know about. Oh, and then he went, let's not forget, he left, he left um, Xerox Park. He got fired from Xerox Park because Taylor was a great guy to work for and a terrible guy to have work for you. And he went to a digital equipment company's research lab. He started one here on the West Coast, where among other things, his research team invented and con or contributed to the creation of AltaVista, which was the first real search engine almost a decade before Google showed up. So being able to find these people, and he, he died in April, but I was able to talk to him so many times. And being able to pull up the, the character of these people is, is incredible, and I hope you know. I hope it transmitted here. And Taylor definitely. I think a lot of people who start out feeling like I don't want to be in the middle of the portrait. I you know I want the focus on my researchers. That's what Taylor would always say. Later on, they feel like, well, wait a second here. Nobody knows about me. You know, mm -hmm. so it's it's a complicated position that can change over time. And he's also just a lot of fun to read about. There, there, uh, one of the anecdotes that I liked about him is that he, he was a, uh, he's a general, right? He was a general because he, because of his work at DARPA, he, he basically had to have a military rank. Right. And then he made sure to hang on to his, his military ID card when he moved to Utah so that he could go to the only bar nearby, which was on a military base. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. He, he was quite the character. He, pounded Dr. Peppers, which I think is, is a really funny thing. And actually, just today, I was speaking uh, this afternoon um, to a group, one member of whom, it turned out, lived across the street from Taylor and also was dean of the engineering school at Stanford at the time. And he was saying that Taylor was the most competitive human being he had ever met in his entire life. I mean, I know that there were these tennis matches that were held he basically convinced a neighbor who had a big tennis court to let him use it. And it was just like these sweat streaming, incredible tennis games that would happen. But apparently, he also went to the dean of engineering at Stanford and announced that the Stanford computer science department sucked. And he, Bob, could come and fix it. He would be hired as chair, again, doesn't have a PhD. And he would bring this entire team with him. Um, and the, the dean of engineering said, you know, thanks, but but no thanks. And so that's the sort of story that I'm telling you now as, you know, like when we're speaking. And if I were to put it in the book, I would definitely have to go find someone else to, to corroborate that story. Because the other thing that I, I really wanted to do here is I really wanted to get the story right. Because there's so much hype. And there's been so much time that has passed. And on the one hand, that makes it fabulous to write about. Because that means Everyone's excitement and personal feelings about all of these people and all these events has calmed down. People have gone and cleared out their file cabinets, because this is still at a time when they're filing cabinets. And they, they'll give you these boxes of papers, which are now a number of them are at Stanford. So you guys can come, and everyone watching can come, because that's open to the public. Um, and you can see these papers, too, that, that people used. And at the same time, though, what happens is that myth gets kind of fossilized. So a big part of the story was trying to do deep research and then hide all that research so that the stories can come to the surface, which is why this book looks intimidatingly fat, 
but the last hundred pages literally are footnotes, so you don't have to read those at all. Yeah. <laughs> was was there something? Was there a fossilized myth that when you uh, got up close to it, you saw it wasn't what you expected? Well, the whole story about Apple, I, I really hadn't known. I feel like if you asked 90% of the world who made Apple happen, they would say Steve Jobs, and some would say Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, but no one would say Mike Markla. I mean, Mark, Markla owned a third of Apple with Jobs and Wozniak. It's not as if he was, he, as if I'm exaggerating his importance. So I think that was a sin of omission in hmm. some sense. And there are things that I had always heard, for example, that Bob Swanson, who started Genentech, uh, he had worked for, for Kleiner Perkins, actually right here, I mean right in the city. Kleiner Perkins, uh, the venture capital firm, used to be headquartered here. And um, the story that I had heard and Tom Perkins tells in his book is that um, Genentech, which is you know, this enormous biotech company, had been nurtured in-house at Kleiner Perkins. And it turns out, no, Bob Swanson was fired from Kleiner Perkins. Bob Swanson uh, was so desperate, he had read an, an article in Scientific American about recombinant DNA and just felt like this is going to become something. I know this can become something. He literally started cold calling scientists saying, hey, do you know anything about this? Can, do you think this could possibly become a company? He was so hell-bent on making this happen that he was on he lived on welfare for several months. He, and then, eventually, Kleiner invested. I mean, very early. They were first, you know, very first-round investors. But this was not something that was incubated inside the company. And I, that wasn't any sort of a deliberate lie, or I don't think. It was just simply that the story had been told in one way for so, so long. And so scraping away at that. I first heard about this in an oral history that Bob Swanson gave. And then you have to say, OK, well, that's a really good story. How do I know if that's true? So then I started talking to people who knew him at the time, um, including, and this is the sort of coincidence that happens all the time, Brooke Byers, who is the Byers of Kleiner Perkins, Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers, Brooke was Bob Swanson's roommate. I mean, so they, they were all, it's all so intertwined and absolutely remembered, you know, had heard that this had happened. And then I knew someone who knew him very well when he was fired. So you're able at some point to triangulate and start to actually get the facts figured out. It, it almost, the cast of characters, the, uh, all the connections between them, it almost makes me think of like the founding fathers, where it's, somehow it seems like there were only like 200 people in the Bay Area, mm -hmm. you know, in 1969, and they were all, you know, if you, it was almost like picking football teams. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, that was something that was really strange, is where things would just recur and recur and recur. So, you know, you have Don Valentine, who's the guy who introduces uh, Mike Markula to the Apple co-founders, and then becomes an investor in Apple, and then becomes, I'm sorry, first Atari, and then Apple. And of course, in the course of this, he starts Sequoia Capital, and we all know what happened there. So it's just this, this constant, kind of these people popping up um, again and again and again. And I think, I mean, that's simultaneously been Silicon Valley's great blessing, which is this sort of deeply enmeshed network, and, and also, in some sense, a problem um, in that sometimes it can be really hard to get into the network. 
one of the stories I tell is the story of a woman um, named Sandra Kurtzig, who was the first woman to bring a tech company public. And um, she, unlike the typical story um, in Silicon Valley where you do your startup in a garage, she started her company at the kitchen table. And she completely bootstrapped the whole operation. And this is uh, in, in part because people would say, in part because she's a woman, though I didn't see a lot of evidence of, of that being the major reason. The major reason was that she was in software at a time when everyone was only funding hardware. And so she, I mean, even Larry Ellison, he, he tells this hilarious story of trying to get Oracle funded and going to venture capitalist offices and being not only laughed out of, of the room, but having his uh, briefcase checked to make sure he hadn't you know, stolen a, a business week while he was in the waiting room. And so it was seen as a very, very shady thing. And, and another one of those sort of people keep overlapping. So Larry Ellison got his start working um, on the same obscure basically database system at Ampex that the Atari founders did. So I don't know if you've ever driven down 101 um, in Redwood City, you see that big sign that says Ampex on the side of the road. Uh, it's a company that's almost been forgotten, but that is where Atari started. That is where, yeah, Atari literally started there with liberated parts. <laughs> and that, that's where Oracle started. That's where Dolby Stereo Systems started. That's where Memorex started. So. You find this in Silicon Valley, these clusters, these places like the, the current one that a lot of people know about is the PayPal mafia. You know, mm. these places where there's been this deep concentration of talent that then sort of like a seed pod <laughs> kind of explodes and, and, and sets the stage for, what, for the next group of entrepreneurs. One of the fun things about reading a book like this is what's similar to uh, between now you know, this current era of Silicon Valley and one that you were looking at, what's similar and what's totally different. And the software thing is one of those fun inversions where you say now, you know, nobody wants to fund hardware. It's too expensive. It's too risky. Um, but software is, is super sexy. Um, but And uh, Sandra Kurtzig, she, she actually didn't even call it software. It was so unsexy that, that she used a completely different name for it, right? Yeah, she, she, she would just talk. Interestingly, it's, it's all about applications, you know, which is kind of now how we talk about it. I mean, the term was so unknown, A, that um, when somebody asked Bob Taylor how much the software weighed in the computer, and B, when Sandy Kurtzig would tell people that she sold software, they thought she was selling lingerie. So it, it was just completely off of people's radars. And, and I think that I mean, some, like when I, I just went and got a coffee before coming up here, and the people next to me just across the street there in the coffee shop were just going on and on about, of course, about tech. And what is happening in San Francisco now with the incredible concentration of tech firms up here um, and people interested in tech can be traced directly to this transition from hardware to software. I mean, Silicon Valley used to be a place, it was a manufacturing economy. These computers were built in Silicon Valley. There, there were factories, you know, there were disk drive factories. There were sophisticated phone factories. One of the people that I write about in um, this book is a woman named Fawn Alvarez who 
starts out, um, when the book opens, she's a child and she's picking fruit in the orchards of the rural hamlet where she lives, which is Cupertino, California. And there, you know, there are orchards everywhere. And uh, she then, as soon as she graduates high school, she, she does what her mother did, which was get a job on the manufacturing line. And this is what people used to be able to do. The, there were good jobs um, for people who were not college educated, who were working in manufacturing in Silicon Valley. Um, and Fawn's story is really wonderful. She ended up being the chief of staff to the head of IBM Rome um, after IBM acquired that, this company called Rome. And her story is how she, through sheer will and brain power, got herself off the manufacturing line where literally she was you know, assembling, they, all, they were doing it all by hand, circuit boards, um, and into the executive suite. So I think that, um, you know, it used to be you needed to have a lot of land to have a tech company. That was part of the reason that the valley happened where it did and not up here. Also, there were a lot of unions up here, and they didn't want unions down in Silicon Valley. But now, you don't need to be able to build a gigantic fabrication facility. All of that happens overseas now. And so you're able to start your software company on, you know, mid-market. And speaking of Fawn, Fawn Alvarez and, and uh, Sandy Hartig, or is it Kurtzig, rather, um, uh, that's another one of those differences between the eras is, uh, that jumped out at me is sort of what the, um, not to say that either of them explicitly presented her rise as a, as a uh, feminist achievement, but that sort of what the goals of feminism were and, and um, how they achieved what they achieved. Like Sandy really talked about kind of using her femininity almost in a jujitsu way against the men around her, like using their sexism <laughs> against them, mm -hmm. um, you know, that she was such a novelty. You know, she was able to probably accomplish things that, that she wouldn't have been able to otherwise. Yeah, I mean, she was a great salesperson, and salespeople find the parts of themselves that are going to make themselves memorable, stand out, and she realized I'm, I am almost certainly the only woman they've ever seen trying to sell software. So, you know, she... Yeah carried a pink briefcase. She had lavender business cards. She said men at the time didn't know how to deal with a woman who wasn't feminine. And so she just saw that as something to play up. At the same time, she was constantly having to tell people, no, I'm not here to get you coffee. No, I'm not a booth babe. It was just a, a, a constant sort of push for her and she has always said that if she hadn't been the boss, it might have been really different. That was something that was really hard for me to get my mind around because I was born at the very beginning of this time in 1969. So when I came up, as you know, came of age, it was, there was literally the fact that I was female I didn't think would have any effect on what I achieved. But I mean, when this book is, the time period where this book is happening, the term sexual harassment in the work, it doesn't exist. The EOC has not defined it as such. Women couldn't get credit cards in their own names um, without their husband's approval in most cases until like 1974. So here, this is someone trying to run a company in this atmosphere. And it's, it's, very, it's very, very complicated um, to understand how all this happened because the attitudes were so pervasive, not just among the men, but among the women, that sometimes I'd have conversations 
not necessarily with these two. I talked to a number of women, a video game programmer, a computer co programmer, and so I would hear these stories that would make your hair curl. I mean, you couldn't believe the kinds of things that people said. Unfortunately, we probably now, hearing what we've heard, can totally <laughs> believe these sorts of things. And I would say, oh my god, that is such incredible harassment. And they, their the reaction was, oh no, that guy's just a jerk. There just there wasn't a sense at all that this was um, in any way gender based. So it was, it's it's a really complicated story to try to tell. And so I, I tried to represent it from all the different facets. Yeah. Well, the the more things change, the more they stay the same. I mean, we're, we're 50 years later, we're still talking about uh, founders who enjoy holding their meetings in hot tubs, uh, <laughs> no matter how that makes things awkward for people around them. Yeah, I mean, what you're referring to is Atari held meetings in hot tubs. And Atari had a company newsletter, a company newsletter that um, for one edition published stories by employees and literally had a story about a machine called the Beauty Bust. And the entire job of this machine was to grow women's breasts. Um, at some point, the women would then be sucked into the machine and die. And I mean, it was this, it was a terrible story. And the inventor had a name, Do uh, Dr. Wolfgang Tittleboob. I mean, it's hilarious and it's terrible at the same time. But this was a, this was a corporate newsletter, for God's sake, you know? Unbelievable that this sort of stuff was just, was just happening and really, it's not this, I didn't have any Atari woman say, oh my God, I remember when that came out, it was just terrible. No, I mean, you know, the lyrics to, to Staircase to Heaven were in the same newsletter. It was just seen as part of the times. It's the kind of thing you can't imagine happening today, except at maybe five or $10 billion companies. <laughs> <laughs> not, not naming names here. Um, <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of... Um, a lot of uh, stage setting in the book that doesn't have anything to do per se with what's going on in the, in the tech industry, but talking about um, protests, you know, riots and protests in Berkeley, protests in Stanford, you know, the Nixon administration. Tell me about what the relationship was between you know this period that we all think of the you know the sixty as, as the sixties turned into the seventies, and what was happening in Silicon Valley at the time. Like what what yeah what was the relationship? Yeah so. The, the influence of the counterculture in Silicon Valley was a very real thing. Um, the people particularly who lived on the East Coast who would look at what was happening on the West Coast would, would talk about um, how none of the women wore bras and how, which just wasn't true with these companies, but this is the way this was perceived, and uh, that things were very loosey-goosey and that Everyone in these companies wanted to stick it to the man, and they were, it was seen as part of this continuum. Uh, this basically starts at the corner of Haight and Ashbury and sort of wafts its way uh, down, the, down the peninsula. And there's some, um, there's some legitimacy to that, looking at some of these companies, particularly Apple really embraced, as, as did a much wider um, movement of personal computers, the notion that this was going to bring um, information and power to people at a time when it had all been concentrated in these very big companies. That sort of suspicion of large institutions actually 
had a lot to do with some of these people making decisions to start companies or join small companies. Like Bob Swanson, when he was trying to figure out if he wanted to uh, try to start Genentech or not, he, he remembered being at Citibank one day when dozens or maybe hundreds, I don't remember, of vice presidents were all fired all at once. And, and he just felt like, well, what kind of job security is that? And people, um, Al Alcorn, who is the engineer from Atari, who I write about, had been at the People's Park protests. And I don't know if you've ever seen the pictures. I mean, someone died in these protests. Someone, you know, the, the protesters were, were sprayed with gas in Sproul Plaza. It was just, it was unbelievable. You would see these pictures of people with bayonets, soldiers with bayonets, and students, you know, with their long hair yelling at them. And it was incredibly um, terrible. And so Al Alcorn had never, he didn't have any particular desire to, you know, stick it to the man. But he also felt like, I'm not going to trust anyone but myself to do, to make, to take care of me. And so even though he had been working at Ampex, which was this big company, when he had the chance to start something small, he thought, you know what, I think this is going to be the best guarantee of my um, abilities to kind of take care of myself. And that was a story you saw again and again and again with the protests um, and attitudes in the, in the Valley and in the broader Bay Area. And it had really real consequences. Because if you asked yourself in, say, uh, before the war, before the Vietnam War happened, huh, where would you expect to find the world's greatest uh, graphics experts or engineers? Your answer would have been in the Department of Defense or at a defense contractor. And what happened for the, pe the generation that came of age during Vietnam is they wanted to work anywhere but that. That had really significant implications. And then when Nixon and Watergate happens, I mean, one of the stories that I really try to get across, one of the points I try to get across in this book is that the amount of pushback that these people faced in trying to make things happen in a different way. So uh, Watergate, I mean, this was perceived by a lot of people as, you know, kind of technology is spying. You know, it was, it was the president was using it inappropriately this right around this same time there became great panic uh someone found out about the existence of the arpanet and a completely spurious story arose about how this was being used to um cross link protesters with uh their was it their social security records and i mean this it was like people were were terrified and when the biotech industry launched people were convinced that there were going to be these these hybrid monsters unleashed. I mean, literally, the mayor of Cambridge, Massachusetts, said that he had heard reports of an orange-eyed monster <laughs> near uh, the Harvard campus. And could that be related to the biotech experiments that were happening in these labs? I mean, it was, it was a really scary time for a lot of people. And this was something that these companies had to push back against. It, it makes me think of to some extent, the way people are talking about artificial intelligence now. Mm -hmm. the, I mean, especially, I, I had no idea that recombinant DNA was so controversial, you know, as quickly as it was, really. Um, Instantly, yeah. Does it make you think also of, of how people are talking about uh, AI now? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of parallels because something that was interesting about uh, the recombinant DNA debate was in the beginning of it, um, it quickly shifted away, but in the beginning of it, there that the both sides of that 
argument were led by scientists, very well-known scientists, um, so much so that a group of very um, prominent biologists got together and made the decision to regulate themselves in their own experiments because they were afraid the, the government was going to come in and do it. Uh, because the, the parallel is that they just weren't sure what they had created. And um, with AI, I think what scares people is, it sounds good, sounds good, sounds and then you hear, well, we don't know exactly how it is making its decisions or learning, and then people you know, get scared. So, and we have the same thing going on now, where they're the, the most prominent voices on both sides are people who ought to know. Yeah, and the, the, uh, the paranoia over the ARPANET was funny also because something I did not know is that the government actually tried to sell, that they, the government wanted ARPANET off their hands. They, right. they, they were trying to sell it to private industry and, and that history could have taken that direction. Yeah, I mean, it was a hilarious memo to read. The subject line was something like, should Xerox buy the internet? I mean, it was should Xerox buy the ARPANET? But I mean, that, and, and the Department of Defense offered it to Xerox, um, offered it to AT&T. No one wanted to buy it, which is just kind of interesting because one thing historians hate is what's called a counterfactual, which is you try to imagine, well, what if this had happened differently? But I couldn't resist, so I had to call um, someone who I know who's very enmeshed in the history of the internet and ask, well, what would have happened if um, the ARPANET had moved into private hands you know, this early on? And she um, said that uh, she thought, this is Janet Abate, that she thought that so much of kind of the open protocols and the Wild West feel um, and the, the sort of organic type of growth that we saw early on in and uh, the internet w just would have all been stopped and everything would have been much more centralized and controlled, which makes perfect sense and is kind of a strange thing to imagine. Speaking of centralized and controlled, there is a, uh, a strain of criticism right now or strain of thinking that says that concentration in the tech industry right now in, in uh, so much, there's so much power concentrated in, you know, the frightful five and basically Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, and uh, Microsoft that they can, they can control innovation, that, that there's uh, the, the new technologies that are going to sort of define which platforms win in the next, you know, 10, 20 years uh, are so expensive to invest in um, and that these companies um, basically control the, the platforms that any new startups will have to compete on and they can buy startups uh, just as soon as they're becoming you know, successful. Is, in the period that you looked at, there were a number of companies that kind of had similar market power. Was, did it, was anyone saying at the time, oh, you know, Fairchild's going to, Fairchild's going to obviously dominate for the next 50 years. Xerox, nobody will ever disrupt Xerox. That conversation really wasn't happening at that time. It's interesting. I just saw a graphic that ran in the Wall Street Journal. Did anyone see this? The concentrate showing like the concentration of Standard Oil at its peak and um, different companies. I actually retweeted it. If you, it's I'm uh, at Leslie Berlin SV, and it was it was pretty dramatic that what we think of as like the classic monopolies in American history. Their market share was pretty similar to the, the companies that we're talking about today. Uh, in terms of tech companies at the time that I'm writing about, there wasn't that kind of conversation going on. If, if you're a Google now, do you look at you know, Fairchild or Xerox or HP or any of these companies and say, 
you know, look at what happened to them in the era that you're writing about and, and draw lessons from it, draw cautionary tales from it? Well, I mean, something that was really interesting to me was to watch what happened when IBM introduced its personal computer to try to take on Apple. Um, and what's interesting there is that, you know, we all think of IBM in a certain way, actually in the way that Apple told us to think about IBM in 1984 with the Big Brother ad. But if you look in that at that time, in this market, Apple had the great majority of market share for personal computers. There just weren't there. There was Commodore. There were a few competitors, but Apple really had the, the, the lion's share. And IBM was the upstart. And it's really interesting to watch this because Apple's running these very staid ads and, and uh, Mike Markle is speaking to the press, which he rarely did, but he did in this case. Um, saying that uh, Apple is like McDonald's, and of, of course we welcome these little people in. And Apple famously ran this ad that said, "Welcome IBM." Seriously, on the it, you know full page ads in the Wall Street Journal. And meanwhile, IBM is start is running these commercials featuring women talking about how their personal computers can help them start their business. And Charlie Chaplin is sort of the representative of their personal computer. And um, they're showing him kind of caught in the wheels of the, you know, the cog of a giant machine, uh, just like in modern times. And so the, the lesson there was that, uh, you know, Apple thought it was on the top of the world. And this, this is something that happens again and again and again and again in Silicon Valley history is these companies that seem like they're never, ever going to be taken down. You know, I mean, Apple almost died. It, it was months away from bankruptcy when Steve Jobs came back to it. And that's why um, I end the book actually talking about the Facebook sign and talking about Facebook. Because um, if you ever go to the Facebook campus, you might wonder, how is it that they're like, wow, they put up a new sign all the time. But if you look, if you actually pull up and you can do this, you can park right there and, and people do. There are all these people taking pictures of themselves next to the Facebook sign to undoubtedly post on Facebook. Um, but if you look at that sign up close and you go to the back of it, you'll see that the Facebook sign is actually one of those pieces of um, very heavyweight vinyl that you might see hanging over a bridge, you know, where they kind of cut holes in it so the wind can go through and it, it won't break. It's this huge piece of that, literally with bungee cords on it, and it's bungee corded across the front of the sign for the company that used to be where the Facebook campus is. <laughs> and um, that company is called Sun Microsystems. And I had heard rumors that I was able to confirm with um, Facebook that Mark Zuckerberg did that very deliberately because he is conscious of this story. I mean, Sun was huge. Sun was going to buy Apple. Sun was, I mean, I think that the, the CEOs of, uh, a, I mean, now this isn't going to sound very good, but AOL and Yahoo and uh, very big companies at <laughs> one time. Yeah, I was going to say that didn't come off quite the way. I, I think was. it's called Oath now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, Sun was this huge hugely important company that just it was acquired and it's just gone 
And um, although its platform is running under a whole lot of websites that you use. And Zuckerberg wanted this message to be in the minds of his employees as they left every day, which is all of this can go away. And um, I think that is a very important story that comes out of this book. Uh, well, I have more questions, but I don't want to ask them because uh, we want to open this up for audience questions. Well, as somebody who's also very interested in this, the history of San Francisco, I wanted to ask you if you did touch upon counterculture and the summer of love had just ended, and those eight years you described were also in San Francisco, the eight years of Joe Alioto, mm -hmm. and a lot of changes were happening, build, big buildings were going up, like the pyramid and stuff like that. Uh, did San Francisco have any effect on, right now it does, but in those days did it have any influence or effect on what was going on in the valley? So this is a question we were discussing in the green room, actually, which is what role did San Francisco play in Silicon Valley's rise at this time? And the answer is it was, it was quite peripheral in terms of a lot of the growth in the valley. It was San Francisco was the heart of the West Coast financial center, and so uh, there were a number of venture capitalists who were up here. And San Francisco was an incredibly attractive draw to get people to move to the valley. I mean, at the time that this book covers, it was so cheap to live in the Bay Area, live on the peninsula. And so people just couldn't believe that they would have the proximity to San Francisco. They would be able to ski in the winter. They could go to the beach. It was everything good that we have now, but much cheaper. And I think also in the story of the recombinant DNA patent, uh, the other patent, there are two patent holders. One of them is Stanford, and one of them is University of California at San Francisco. And there, there was the, the level of medical and uh, bio, biology research that was happening at UCSF, even then was influencing uh, the type of research that was happening everywhere, because something that I probably didn't make clear when we were talking is that when I talked about Stanford starting to patent the ideas that are coming out of their professors' brilliant minds, that is where the recombinant DNA patent came from. Was it's, it was jointly patented at Stanford's insistence, at the insistence of a man named Niels Ramers, who's one of the major characters of my book. It was jointly patented by Stanford and the University of California, San Francisco. I think also um, something that I would point to is that San, San Francisco has always been such a remarkably open place. And I think that the openness to new ideas was influential down the valley, but also in a much more practical sense. And this is something we haven't really had a chance to talk about, which is um, how important immigrants have been to the rise of Silicon Valley and, and to the tech industry in general. So at the time that I'm, that I'm covering in this book, you're just beginning to see the really significant arrival of large numbers of people, particularly from India. But nonetheless, even at this time, the valley has about twice the percentage of the population born outside of the United States as the rest of the country as a whole. And at this point, two-thirds of the people working in science and tech in Silicon Valley right now, two-thirds of them were born outside of the United States. And so I think when we're talking about uh, potential threats to the valley, what, what could uh, 
shut the valley down. The number one concern I have is shutting down the flow of immigration or making it, uh, you know, it becoming so prohibitively expensive here that people don't want to be here because no, no country has a lock on innovation. No, no one has smarter people running around there than anywhere else. And I think the valley is what it is. And now the innovation economy in San Francisco as well is what it is because the best and brightest from around the world want to be here. And if that changes, uh, there's no reason to think that we would be able to just kind of continue. Yeah, you know, I, I was born and raised here, so my whole my perception's totally different than most <laughs> people in this room. I think one of the things that's, that I think caused a lot of what happened here, too, is that in Stanford, they had, you know, in other schools, like back east, you know, when someone developed something, I think they tried to keep it within house. Mm -hmm. But in Stanford, they really encouraged a lot of professors to go out and start their own companies. And that caused a lot of, uh, you know, all these new companies and also all the venture capital that followed here. I think kind of, I think 90 or 80% of the world's venture capital comes to this area. So that causes a huge push. But one of my questions is that, you know, what I've always found kind of interesting, and maybe you have a comment about this, is that a lot of the founders have psychology backgrounds. Hmm. Like you're talking about Bob Taylor had a psychology background. Mark Zuckerberg, when he went to, to Harvard, his degree was in psychology. Slack, which was like the fastest growing, I think, startup now is... Um, they, the founder there, I think he has a degree in philosophy, I think. So do you have a comment about that at all? or Symbolic systems, isn't that the, uh, the, the classic uh, major at Stanford that, right. that so many of them come from? Right. Well, I guess I should be glad my son's majoring in music then. Um, <laughs> we have a great fortune about to enter our family. Um, I, I don't, actually, I, I don't, beyond sort of the anecdotal, I, I, I don't have a larger message to convey other than to say that I think that what has made these companies work is this combination of vision and execution. And I think that that, I think too, too often the pendulum swings to one side or the other where everyone wants to be a visionary or we were talking in the green room about right now how um, today in particular there's been a lot of press around we should uh, all just be working on, you know, working as hard as humanly possible um, at all times, kind of heads down. And I think that hitting the balance is really important. So I'm not surprised to hear that in highly technical places, having people who are bringing in a diversity of experiences really matters. Again, that's another reason why immigration has been really important is that di diverse uh, perspectives that come in. One of the one of the things that gives you a little bit of a, a knowing laugh reading parts of this book is the things that people were complaining about 50 years ago that are nothing in comparison to the way they are now, like, like people complaining about basically housing prices in Silicon Valley or traffic in Silicon Valley or uh, uh, one, of my, one of my favorites is uh, the, the perks. Oh, these perks have gotten out of control. Our employees are so coddled because we're now offering free decaf as well right. as caffeinated coffee. Right. Yeah, it's it, it it's it's back to your the more things change you know I mean that that said I I have to say that one thing really is different now and I just haven't seen it before which is all of that was going to kill Silicon Valley right traffic and overcrowding if everyone was worried that was going to kill Silicon Valley oil shocks were going to kill Silicon Valley Japanese competition was going to and and Chinese competition was going to kill Silicon Valley 
and Y2K was going to kill Silicon Valley, and you know the dot-com bust was going to kill Silicon Valley, and Silicon Valley has just sort of come back. And actually, to me, that's a much more interesting question, which is why has Silicon Valley lasted so long more than why did Silicon Valley get started here? But what's new and different now is that for the first time, I actually feel like I've heard people saying, hmm, I, I'm not sure that I uh, want Silicon Valley to live. I mean, the, the, you know, there's, well, there's a lot of skepticism and fear uh, out there right now um, about what we are doing. And that is categorically different from anything that we've seen before. And I think that really can be traced to our understanding now of the, the intimacy that we have with our devices and realizing how much you know, these little things that we're carrying around know about us and wondering who well who's controlling that information and and how is it being used and these sorts of questions have really come up along with your points about concentration of power and are these effectively utilities or should they be regulated as media companies these are new conversations um, for people in silicon valley to be hearing hi I read in, on your interview with the 650 that when you started writing this book, you set out by first of all outlining a timeline and then going about picking what, which stories you want to tell. And I was wondering why you picked that approach. And uh, two, if since there are things that are alarming about Silicon Valley right now, if you had the chance to change one thing, what would it be and why? Okay. So uh, why did I choose to start with a timeline? Because I think that facts are vitally important. And so I didn't want to just start with something that sounded cool to me. I wanted to have data that around which I, that, that could serve as a skeleton around which I could construct these stories. And so, I mean, when you know I want to write about Silicon Valley, there's, where would you even start? So a timeline seemed like a reasonable way to start. And in terms of what would I change about Silicon Valley right now. I think I wish that these companies could find a way to be more transparent about how our data are being used, just so that, I mean, part of me is a little worried that then that, then that would open the AI question and it would sound even scarier to people. But part of me feels like it would be really nice if the, um, agreement that you sign, you know, the terms and conditions that we all scroll past whenever we do get a new thing downloaded and we just hit, yes, I accept it. If um, instead... Wait, you don't read the whole thing? Yeah, I, I, well, I prefer to translate it into German and then read it. Um, if, if we could instead get something that is the equivalent of how they've modified our credit card statements so that now when you get your credit card statement instead of all the gobbledygook that it used to say it has a big square that says if you pay only this amount in you know in a year you're going to owe this much it's quite easy to understand and stark and that sounds like a small thing and that is a small thing but i think just some sort of a nod that would make it so that people are aware more of what we are doing and how this information is being used. I think that would be a, a helpful first start. Thank you, everybody. Yeah, thanks for coming. And that does it for this episode of Scrib Chat. Don't forget, you can read Troublemakers Silicon Valley's Coming of Age on Scribd for free with your subscription. 
If you're not yet a Scribd member, you can read for free for 30 days by downloading the Scribd app or visiting scribd.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-D.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.